seated. Let's continue our time of worship through the reading of His Word. And we're going to be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 11. Before I do, we are, uh, we're talking today, I'm not going to try to steal Dave's thunder, but we're talking about being aliens and strangers. And as I was thinking about this and as I was praying about this, man, I just really came uh, to a place where I realized sometimes just feel like life gets you and it just kind of beats you down a little bit sometimes you feel like an alien or a stranger sometimes you feel like leah from genesis where she felt unloved but god saw her and that's the hope that i really feel like we need to latch on to today that if we walk away from this morning let us learn from this jesus own sayings In Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 27, I encourage you to read the whole context, but I'm just going to read this portion right here. Jesus says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the the Son wills to reveal Him. Hear me, church. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us pray. Father God, as we come and continue our study in Ephesians. We continue our time of worship through the proclamation of your word. Lord, I pray that you would just move upon Dave's heart right now. Let him speak when you say speak, and let him be silent when you say silent. But Lord, let us walk away being exalted in your word towards you. Let us be exhorted towards good works, good deeds, for your name's sake. I pray that the Holy Spirit would rest upon Dave right now as he preaches the word and let him preach the word. It is in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. At this time, we'll uh, dismiss our children to their classes. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, or if you have a Bible on a digital device, go ahead and find that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. This is a time of year when many of our students are getting excited because school is almost over. Uh, especially if you're a senior graduating, uh, and we do have some seniors graduating from high school and college this year, so we're uh, very happy for you. Um, Fifty years ago at this time, I was nearing the completion of my freshman year of college at a huge university in Brownwood, Texas, called um, Howard Payne University. It had an enrollment of about 2000, which is smaller than my high school. 
but the neat thing about it being in a, in a school that side, it was a Baptist college, and being a small college, it was one of those places where everybody knows everybody. Or if you didn't know them personally, at least you knew who they were. Well, at the same time I was there finishing up my freshman year of, of college, um, there was a woman who would later become my wife, was also in attendance there. Um, now, Andrea, you, you need to understand, was a committed follower of Jesus. She had a um, faith in Christ that was the genuine article. Her friends would tell her when she was in high school, uh, Andrea, you're probably going to end up marrying a preacher. Well, she ended up marrying me. Um, But at the time, none of my friends would have accused me of being a committed follower of Jesus myself. And if anyone were to say, yeah, Dave, he's going to end up preaching the gospel, it would have been as the punchline to a joke. I was not following Jesus. Uh, That's not why I was in college. But as we've seen before, as we've been studying in Hebrew, in uh, not Hebrews, my men's Bible study is studying Hebrews, in Ephesians, there's two words that stand out in chapter 2, verse 4, but God. God has plans and God has way of bringing things about that we never thought possible. And the interesting thing is that while um, Andrea and I were in, in, at Howard Payne that same year, it was the only year we were at, at, on campus together, um, the odd thing is we didn't really know each other. We had never met. We were strangers. And if we had met, uh, we probably would not have become close friends. Because like I said, she was following Jesus. I was not. Two years passed, and I came to see that my life was morally bankrupt. I was not the nice guy that I thought I was. Uh, And at the same time that I saw Christ's goodness, Christ's mercy, Christ's holiness... And the only thing I could do, the only responsible thing, the only reasonable thing I could do was say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Be the Lord of my life. Do with me whatever you want to do. I'm yours. And he did. He changed my life. He gave me a new life. From that moment, I started reading this book that... um, had sat on my shelf most of the time. And I came to love him more and more and more. I started going to church regularly instead of sporadically. And uh, started my senior year of college knowing Christ. Attending church regularly for about five months. And then I changed to a different church. I started attending the church where, uh, guess what, Andrea was attending there. We met, we became friends, a year and a half later, we married, and almost 46 years later, 
in 46 years of marriage, raising five children together, it's safe to say that we're no longer strangers. So listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. He says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So our text starts out with these words, so then, Well, we don't normally start a conversation by saying, so then, and neither was Paul. Paul was not bringing up a new topic. He was drawing a conclusion based upon what he had already said in the verses leading up to this. It's what uh, Pastor Matt preached on last week. Now, I'm not going to re-preach Matt's sermon, but just in case you were not here last week, Or, just in case you were here and heard the sermon but forgot what you heard, uh, let me just summarize in a couple of points. In verses 11 and 12, we could summarize it like this. Formerly, you Gentiles were aliens, outsiders, strangers, foreigners. And he he describes them in, in five terms. Or He says that you were separate from Christ. You were excluded or alienated from the commonwealth or the citizenship of Israel. Now, the word he uses there is important. It's the word politia, which from, is the word that we get the word polity. So I don't know that word either. Polit- well, you know the word politics. It comes from the same word. But polity refers to governance. We speak of church polity how our our church is organized governmentally. You were excluded from the commonwealth, the citizenship of Israel. Then he says you were strangers to the covenants of promise. That word strangers is is another interesting word. Uh, The singular is xenos, from which we get the word xenophobia, If you're xenophobic, it means you're afraid of anyone that is different from foreigners, strangers, people of different cultures, different languages. You were strangers to the commonwealth of, excuse me, to the covenants of promise. You were without hope. Now, in the Old Testament, God had promised through the prophets that he would include Gentiles as a part of his covenant people. But the Gentiles didn't know that. They were without hope. And finally he says, you were without God in the world. Now, the Gentiles to whom he was speaking, these Ephesians who were now in the church, he says, you were previously, formerly, without God in the world. Now, the fact is, they had many gods. They worshipped many gods, but they did not know the one true living God. 
And so they were without God. And then in verses 13 through 18, we could summarize it like this. But now, from Jewish believers and Gentile believers, Christ has created one new people of God. Having reconciled them in one body to God through the cross. Now, if you were here last week, as Matt preached about this idea of reconciliation, the word simply means to be brought back into a right relationship. If a husband and wife are estranged, they're separated. When they're reconciled, they're brought back into a right relationship with each other. You Gentiles have been brought near. If you no longer a dividing wall, separating person of Christ Jesus. And this all comes about through the cross. It is the cross that unites us, all believers, whatever your race, whatever your skin color, whatever your culture, whatever your language, we are made one in Christ. And we can see see in verse 18, for through him, that is through Christ, we now have access in one spirit to the Father. In that one verse, we see that there is one Savior, it's Christ Jesus. There is one spirit through whom we have access to the Father. There is one Father, and there is one people of God. Paul is emphatic here that there is one people of God. There's not two. It's no longer Jew and Gentile. When we speak of the church being God's people, we've got to understand that the church is not an afterthought of God. The church is not plan B. The, pl- the church is something that God has promised from eternity past, that everything would be brought together in Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile. So that's last week's sermon. So that's what brings us up to verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. When he says you are no longer strangers, it's the exact same word that he used back in verse 12. A stranger an alien, a foreigner. You're no longer strangers or aliens. Now, that word aliens is very similar in meaning to stranger, but it has the idea of being a stranger in the sense of being a sojourner in the land. You're traveling there, but it's not where you naturally belonged. It has the idea of being a non-citizen or a resident alien who doesn't have all the same rights and privileges as the citizens of that country. You are no longer strangers to God or to the people of God. Now, if we are no longer strangers, then what are we? What does it mean to be the people of God? When we speak of the word, when we use the word church, there's lots of different meanings that could be applied to that. In fact, the uh, Webster, Merriam-Webster Dictionary gives five definitions just for the noun alone, and you can also 
use it as a verb. But there are three meanings that we commonly use. Probably everyone here uses the word church in one of these contexts. It can be a building of public worship, especially Christian worship. When we say that we worship at the church on Sunday morning, we go to the building, we leave our homes, and we go to this building, the church, and we worship. Secondly, it can be a body or organization of religious believers. Um, This would be in the sense of being an institutional church. We could say that Paragon Church meets in this building. And thirdly, it can be a public divine worship service. At this very moment, we are having church. And while it's okay to use the word church in these senses, What Paul has in mind is something far beyond how we normally use it. None of these definitions even begin to touch upon what Paul explains in this text. Now, in chapter 3, which we'll go into next week, Paul uses this word mystery when he talks about the church. Three times in chapter 3, once in chapter 1, Once in chapter 5, and again in chapter 6, he uses the word mystery. Now, what is a mystery? Well, it's something we don't understand. It's something that's hidden from us. And Paul uses this term mystery when he applies it to the church because this whole concept of what God is doing in Christ Jesus in uniting all people of faith in him in one person in one body, is a mystery. It's beyond what we can comprehend in our natural man, in our natural mind. And yet, at the same time, even though it's, it's, it's so far out, God makes it very tangible, very real to us when he speaks of the church. Now, in chapter 2, Paul uses four pictures to describe what this church is, what this people of God is. Four pictures. Now, in chapter 5, he'll give a fifth picture. We're not going to talk about today. Uh, We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 5. But as he's discussing in chapter 5, the relationship of a husband and wife. And And he gets down to the end of that discussion And he says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul makes this amazing statement. He says, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church as he's discussing a husband-wife relationship because that pictures what the relationship of the church is to Christ. We are his bride. He is our our husband. But in chapter 4, excuse me, in chapter 2, there are four pictures. We've already touched on one. The first one is that we are no longer strangers because believers are united as one body with Christ as our head. In verses 15 and 16, it says, So that in himself, that is in Christ, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. 
and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, and by it having put to death the enmity, the animosity, the separation. So a few weeks back in uh, chapter 1, if we want to understand, well, what do we mean when we talk about being one body? How is this, how does this relate to Christ? At the end of chapter 1, in verses 22 and 23, it says this, And he, that is the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet, that is, under Jesus' feet. And he gave him, he gave Jesus, as head over all things to the church. And listen to this next expression, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, when you look around and you see churches and you see an institutional church, do you see the fullness of him who fills all in all in that church? Well, we would tend to be hesitant to say yes. But this is God's intent. This is what God has planned to come about in Christ Jesus. That the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. But that only becomes apparent in real life when the church actually looks to Christ as its head. Not as a, as a figurehead, not as, you know, England has a, has a king of England that really has no real governmental power. Christ is not a figurehead. Christ is the head of his body, the church. Now, sometimes um, in life, our bodies don't function as they were intended to function. Uh, This becomes even more apparent the older you get. But sometimes through accident, through illness, through some problems, our bodies are not functioning as they were designed to function. But when we look at, the, at a human body as God designed it to function, our, our members work in harmony with each other, all under the direction of its head. When a body is separated or detached from the head, it ceases to be a living organism. It's dead. That's not what Christ has done in the church. Christ has a living body, one body with many members. And as one body, we're no longer strangers to God. And as members of Christ's body, we are no longer strangers to each other. Whatever our backgrounds, whatever our culture, whatever our race, we are no longer strangers to one another, to one another. Because it is Christ who unites us. There's a second picture. We're no longer strangers because believers are fellow citizens. He says in, uh, 
in verse, verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, Paul uses, when he uses the word citizen there, it's a form of the same word that he used back in uh, verse 12, was it? When he talks about being strangers, um, when being excluded from the commonwealth or citizenship of Israel. It's a form of the same word. And he sticks a prefix at the beginning of it that means with or together with. So when he's talking about the people of God, he is saying, you are now fellow citizens, not resident aliens, not half-citizens. You are full citizens with all the rights, the privileges, and the responsibilities of being a part of the people of God. Now, when we're part of the people of God, think of this in terms of uh, citizenship. Think of it in terms of being a new community, an alternative society, a new commonwealth, a nation, a kingdom. This is what God has made the people of God to be. A kingdom where Jesus reigns as Lord, as King. We are the people of a new covenant. Remember, you were formerly strangers to the covenants of promise. But now, but now, he says... You are full citizens in God's kingdom. Now, this new covenant was promised in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the one who who makes this covenant a reality. Um, Remember at the Last Supper, as Jesus met with his disciples, he said this, This cup which is poured out for you, is the blood of the new covenant. It's the new covenant in my blood. Now this new covenant that was promised even in the Old Testament had provisions that people in the Old Testament didn't enjoy. They didn't have these. This was something that was reserved for the new covenant people of God, which included both Jews and Gentiles. He says in uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, God promised, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh that is a tender, compassionate heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Now, those of us who are familiar with with basic Christian doctrine, we know that when, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we're born again, God gives us his spirit to come dwell within us. And, and we think of that, well, of course that's normal. But in the Old Testament, the people of God themselves didn't enjoy that privilege. You had certain kings that had the spirit of God. You had priests and you had prophets But the majority, the overwhelming majority of God's people, the nation of Israel, did not know what it meant to to have God's Spirit 
within them, moving in their lives personally. This is the privilege that every believer, every person who's part of this new covenant enjoys. The Spirit of God dwells within you. In Jeremiah 31, uh, beginning in verse 31, he starts talking about uh, making a new covenant. And in verse 33 and 34, God says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now, it's, it's wonderful to know that our sins are forgiven, that we're, we're no longer under the penalty that we earned of separation from God. We, we can know that our sins are forgiven, but the, the beauty of it is that in knowing that our sins are forgiven, we also know the one who forgives our sin. We know him personally. We are privileged. This is something the people of the Old Covenant didn't enjoy. They didn't know Him personally. As a, as, a, as a man knows another man, we have that privilege. And when you really come to know someone, you are no longer strangers. There's a third picture that He gives. We're no longer strangers because believers are members of God's household. In verse, at the end of verse 19, it says, You are of God's household. Now, there's a difference between a house and a household. I live in a house. I've lived in, in a house with members of my own family. And it's the members of my family that make up my household. You can have a house without a household. But we are of the household of God. The church is God's intimate family. He is our father. We are his adopted sons. We have a relationship with him. And if we are his adopted children, what does that make us to each other? That makes us brothers and sisters. We are members of God's household. Now, every one of you can probably tell me of some family that is dysfunctional. Maybe your family is dysfunctional. But when a family is operating the way it is intended to operate, when a family is what God created family to be, there's an intimate relationship based on love. We love each other. Our parents instill in us that love for each other. And no matter what anybody else may do, you stand up for family. You love your family members. There's a fourth picture. We're no longer strangers because believers are being fitted together as stones that make up God's temple. Listen to these verses, and uh, he, he shifts from the image of a house as a building to the image of a temple. And he says, 
having, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also being built together are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's our instruction. That's, that's, uh, that's how we know truth. That's what this book tells us. We have foundational truths in here. And Christ Jesus is the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. Every other part of the building must be aligned with that cornerstone. That's, that's the importance, the value of Christ. If we're not lined up with him, then we cannot be properly aligned with each other and with God because he is the cornerstone. Now he says this whole temple, all the people of God together, he says it is a, you're growing into a temple Now, that was true when Paul was writing this in his day, in the first century. The church was growing. As as the gospel was proclaimed, people saw the truth. They came to Christ and said, "I, I give my life to you. They were added to the church, those who were being saved. On the day of Pentecost alone, 3,000 people were added to the church. Short time later, we have 5,000 people. To the point where... Later in the book of Acts, we find that the whole world is being turned upside down. The church is a growing church. And today, you know, when you look at statistics worldwide, it's said that approximately, roughly one-third of the world's population professes to be Christian. Now, I'm I'm not going to guarantee you that every one of those is a genuinely born-again committed follower of Christ. But just the fact that a third of the world's population professes faith in this Christ, who in the first century was an itinerant preacher with 12 disciples and you know a larger group that followed him around, that could be numbered maybe in the thousands. How has this become such a movement that the whole world has been transformed. We have hospitals, orphanages, works of mercy being done in the name of Jesus. This is the power of the gospel to change lives, to change your life, to change my life. The church is a growing church. I look around and I see lots of problems in the world. But none of those problems is bigger than my God. Whatever problems you face, whatever problems our society faces, God is bigger than every one of those. But the church is a growing church. It's not only a growing church, it is a holy holy temple. He says you're growing into a holy temple. We We have signs in our church that says, come as you are. Whatever your condition, whatever your life has been, come as you are. But it doesn't stop there. The next line on that sign says, be changed. When you come to Christ, Christ changes you. 
you become a new person. And you continue to grow in holiness, in righteousness, as you continue to look to Jesus, who is the author and the, and the perfecter of your faith. So this temple, he says, is a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Stephen, one of the uh, uh, members of the early church, he was a deacon. Uh, he, was, he loved the Lord. He was brought before the Sanhedrin, the council, the same Sanhedrin that convicted Jesus and saw to it that he was crucified. Stephen was brought before this same council, having been accused of blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against the law, blasphemy against the temple, speaking evil of the temple. And as Stephen makes his defense, he starts all the way back with Abraham and traces God's working among his people. And he gets to... uh, uh, He'll he'll end up getting all the way to Jesus and saying, uh, this same Jesus whom you crucified at the hands of godless men. But when he gets to the point about uh, David and Solomon, he says this. uh, He tells us that God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. He says, David found favor. This is in Acts chapter 7. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose, for my rest? Was it not my hand which made all these things? He was telling the Sanhedrin, the keepers of the temple, which they thought to be the dwelling place of God, where God's glory dwelt, which nobody saw. And he was telling them that God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. And he quotes from Isaiah to prove his point. But they were gnashing his teeth at him, and especially when he said, and you crucified the Lord of glory. You crucified the Son of God. They ended up stoning him to death. And the person who wrote Ephesians was standing there right with them, holding the garments of those as they took up stones to kill Stephen. All of these things in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, were pictures of what Christ would do when he came. It was pictures of Christ and his church, his people. God has a bigger plan for you and for me than simply getting us to heaven Now, I I know a lot of people, whenever I say that, people wonder, what are you talking about? Of course the, the purpose of God's, of Christ dying on the cross, is to get us to heaven. 
No, that's not the purpose of Christ dying on the cross. The purpose of Christ dying on the cross is to reconcile us to God, to bring us back into a right relationship with God, to bring everything together in Christ. That's God's purpose. God desires, as as we read in this verse, verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. God wants to live in and among his people, not just in heaven, but here and now in this world, in his people. God desires to see his name proclaimed here and now throughout the world that many might give praise and glory to God, that many sons and daughters would be brought to glory. God's kingdom has no place in it for any rival kingdoms. Now, when when I talk to people face-to-face or when I interact with people on social media, if I make a post or if I make a comment, uh, it's never, trust me, it is never my intention to offend anyone. As much as it's possible to me, I want to live at peace with all men, as much as it's within my power. But I want to speak very frankly to you. No individual, no political party, no national entity, no ideology, no institutional church can occupy the throne where Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. There is no place for any rival in God's kingdom. We, as the people of God, have a message that we proclaim. That message is not help save our democracy. And if you're sitting on the other side of the aisle, that message is not make America great again. The message that God has given us to proclaim to the world can be summed up in three words. Jesus is Lord. Period and exclamation point. So then, Paul says, we're no longer strangers. And if we are no longer strangers, then don't live as strangers. So what does this mean for you to do? Let's let's sum it up here. What does it mean for you? First, be sure that you really are part of Christ's one body. Be sure that you really are a fellow citizen in God's new covenant people through the blood of Jesus. Be sure that you really are a member of God's household, a member of his family, that you have that intimate relationship with God as your father. Be sure of that. And fourth, be sure that you really are a living stone that's part of God's temple, the temple where God dwells. Now, if you're not, and it's very possible, there may be some here this morning, that you say, I don't know that I'm those things. You can be. 
It's not something you have to wait till tomorrow. It's not something you have to wait till next year. You can be. It's simply this. Every one of us, whoever we are, the default program in our life has been to live for ourselves, to live a basically self-centered life. What makes me happy? Every one of us have lived like that. God has not occupied the throne in our lives. And we call that, Bible calls that sin. And that sin separates us from God. Jesus died to deal with that sin. Jesus died to reconcile us to God. Jesus died to give us a new life. So when we surrender our lives to Christ as Lord, that's when that transformation takes place. That's when we have that new life. If you've never done that, you can do that today. It's, very, it's, it's not a complicated process. It's simply saying, Jesus, I've sinned. I've lived for me. Be the Lord of my life. I did that 47 years ago. Jesus changed my life. He can change your life. So what about the rest of us? You said, Dave, I, I know I'm... I'm all of those things. I've got that down. The faith that you have, if you know that you have a living faith in Jesus, let that faith be a passionate faith, not a passive faith. Let it be a passionate faith. Don't settle for being anything less than what God has called you to be. Don't settle for being anything less than what God has empowered you to be by His Spirit. Build relationships with other believers. If we are the people of God, we need to strengthen our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not an island over here living our lives. God has placed us in community to strengthen each other. So build relationships with other believers and let Christ be exalted in those relationships. Be an example to other believers. And be a light to your friends and your acquaintances who are not believers, who are still in darkness. You have the light of the world, Christ Jesus, dwelling in you. Let that light be a light to your friends in darkness. Don't hide it. And finally, don't be a stranger. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your calling on our life. We thank you, Lord, that you change us, that you've made us one people in Christ Jesus. We ask that you would help us to take these words to heart and to live our lives in a way that not only brings glory to you, but that brings joy to your heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.